you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 12. Some of y'all are looking at the clock and you're going, okay. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. It's been like this every hour and I have gotten the whole load of hay in there in about, how long has it been, Steve? About 20 minutes each service? A little less than 20 minutes. So I've, I've done it in less than 20 minutes each service. Now this is 11 o'clock. So y'all need a little bit extra, I know, but oh goodness. It, has it not been a great day? It's been a great day. Um, so, so happy that you're here. So thrilled. It's been a, it's been a special day all the way around and, and so thankful for how that God has put a great team together to accomplish his purpose in you and for us and through us. Uh, as we, uh, we're concluding the parables uh, series today, and we're looking at my favorite parable in all of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 12. Um, and I don't have time to read the whole thing, uh, so I'm just going to talk about it uh, and uh, just kind of let you uh, in on, you can read it, it's uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. And as you're looking at this parable, I, when Jesus tells a parable, he's painting a picture, he's painting a picture of of what God has done or what God is doing or what God will do. He's painting a picture of the way things were or the way things are, the way things will be. Um, and, and, and those pictures are filled with vibrant colors and, and, and sights and sounds and smells and, and, and all the things that a good story is about. But when we come to Mark chapter 12, the, the story, the picture he paints is it's not vibrant colors. It's kind of the dark hues and grays and blues of a life that is a little bit depressing. Uh, the, story, the story initially, if you stop at verse 9, the story doesn't seem to have a good ending. And yet, when Jesus tells this story, it is pure autobiography. He's telling it about himself. He's painting a picture of himself. Now, the way he does it is he tells the story of a, of a, a, a master or an owner of a, of a piece of land who plants a vineyard and he sets the uh, wall of protection around it and, and, he, and he digs the vat underneath the wine press so that when the grapes are, are crushed that the wine vat captures the wine and, and uh, there's a tower in the middle of the, of the vineyard so that there's always a watchman who sleeps there and keeps watch over the vineyard and and uh, so the, the owner of the land builds this vineyard, this vineyard owner. And uh, if, you ha- if you have the opportunity, write down in the margin of your copy of Scripture, right there at verse 1, you might write Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and following, because that's really where Jesus is pulling this from. Isaiah 5 is the song of the vineyard owner. It's really God's song about Israel. And he's saying, he's saying I have planted Israel, and Israel is a vineyard that, that God has planted, and and yet, after all that I've done for Israel, they still put out sour grapes. I wonder if he feels like that about us sometimes. After all he's done for us, and we still throw out sour grapes. But anyway, so Jesus is telling this story. And here, here the, 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 the owner of the vineyard goes off to a foreign land. And he hires some, some uh, vine dressers, is what they're called in my translation. Vine dressers, sharecroppers, tenants. Uh, they, are, they are hired to take care of the vineyard. And, and so he leaves, and yet 
What happens with the vine dressers is they, they begin to think that the vineyard belongs to them and not the owner. And so when the owner sends messengers or servants to, to, to get some money from them, the, the, the vine dressers beat one and they, they stone another, they kill a couple. And, and, and the, every time the owner sends a, a, a servant to, to, to talk, a messenger to talk to the vine dressers, the vine dressers beat him up or stone him or kill him. And so finally, the, vine, the owner of the vineyard says, I, I know what I'll do. I don't know what else to do. I know what I'll do. I'll send my son because surely they'll respect my son. And so as the vine dressers, the tenants of the, of, of the vineyard, they see uh, the son of the owner coming their way. They don't think, oh, wow, this is the son. Now we've got to behave. They think to themselves, oh, wow, this is the son. Let's kill him so that then we can really take ownership of the vineyard. And that's what they do. They kill him. Now that's the end of the story. Yikes. Now, when Jesus is telling the story, obviously the owner of the vineyard is, everybody say God. So in the story that Jesus tells, the owner of the vineyard is God and the vine dressers. Who do you think the vine dressers are? Yeah, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, that, that, those type people. And we're going to have a different application in a few minutes. And then who is the son? Jesus, great. All right, so, so what is it that Jesus is trying to teach? Well, I think he teaches us at the turnaround. You see, verses 10 and 11 is the turnaround of the story. Verses 10 and 11, Jesus then turns it on its head and he says, Now, have you not even read where the scripture says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and it is wonderful in our eyes. What is the transition? What happens between the son being dead and it's wonderful in our eyes in verses 10 and 11? What's the difference? Well, the difference is what Jesus came to accomplish. You see, I believe the point of the story, this autobiography that Jesus is teaching us, I think what what the point is that that, that Jesus wants us to be captured by is, is that God unleashes a wonderful life. God's glorious work, especially in the person of Jesus Christ, unleashes this wonderful life for you and for me. And we all want a wonderful life. We all yearn for a life that is satisfying without missing parts. We all desperately crave a wonderful life. And and the good news is that that's what God's work does for us. And so as we look at this story, how, how does... How does Jesus paint the picture of how that you and I can taste a wonderful life, not just sometime in heaven in the sweet by and by, but every single day? How do we taste it? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to consider the, we need to consider the patient love of God. We, we need to consider this wondrous, patient, faithful, steadfast love of a living God. Without, without going into too much detail, let me just kind of break it down like this. How many times was the owner of the vineyard going to send a servant to get beat up by these wicked tenants? And he kept doing it. He sent one, they stifled him. They, he sent another, they, they smothered him. He sent another, they stoned him. He kept on sending. Why? Why would he send? Because he wanted the he wanted the, serve, the, the, the vine dressers to have a second chance and a third and a fourth and a fifth. Aren't you glad that we have a God who gives the second chance? Aren't you glad that he is a God who loves us enough to give us a third and a fourth and a fifth 
Friends, we need to consider God's patient love for us. And God has been patient with us just as he was patient with Israel, just as he has been patient uh, uh, through the Old Testament time and the rebellion and the sour grapes of, of Israel. God was supremely patient with them, giving them time after time after time after time, chance after chance after chance after chance. And the same thing is true for us. How many of us as followers of Christ have ever been rebellious against him? How how many times have we held on to a bitterness or an anger or even a hatred? How how many times have have we held on to a, 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 a lifestyle choice or a behavior that is contrary to the will of God? How many times have we done that? I don't know about you, but I can't count them all. And yet, how patient has God been with me? Friends, I have to tell you, I wouldn't be standing here today if God didn't have a patient and persistent love for me. It would have been far easier for God just to take me out. And yet, he withheld wrath because he loves with such a patient love. I think of of my parents and how they were patient with me as a child. Can you imagine having me as a child? That was before any ADHD, ADD, hootie, hada, hada, hada. I mean, it wasn't before it was there. It's just before they diagnosed it and gave you pills for it. Um, and you might think that I drink a lot of coffee and coffee is the reason I am the way I am. Oh, how mistaken you are. I am the way I am and I have been the way I am. I'm kind of calmed down when I drink coffee. It kind of turns me on my head and kind of soothes the raging beast. But I I, I have been very active all my life, pre-caffeine. <laughs> oh, the patience of my parents. You know, it would have been easier for them to lock me in a barrel than it was to, ha- would, to have to tolerate my behaviors sometimes. It would have been far easier for them to act like they didn't know me when they sent me to school. And when the principals called. You know, the teachers that I had, they did love me. But I always came home. And I came home with great grades. Except for the conduct grades. Excessive talking, they said. Well, God knew what he was doing. He was preparing a preacher, wasn't he? I, 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 just, I just think of the patience of my parents. I think of the patience of my daughters with a dad like me. Can you imagine having a dad like me? Oh, there are some positive things about it. I'm, I'm loving and, and I'm compassionate and I'm gracious and anything my little girls want, they give. Not hardly, but, but can you imagine? I, I don't know where we were yesterday, but um, was it yesterday or something? They said, stop. Maggie will consistently say, Dad, that's inappropriate. Don't do that. My Maggie will say that. Dad, that, 
that that is not okay. Don't do that. Yeah, I, I, they watch me on, on, on my social media. Do you know, you have no idea everything that I would put on social media if I could. But they're like the police of my social media. They said, stop, dad, don't do that. That's not okay. Oh, the patience of my girls. But even the patience of my wife and my parents and my daughters, even the patience of you with me, that, that's great, but that is, that's an imperfect patience. God's patience is perfect. And his patience always has the right motivation. You know what his motivation is? Your best and his glory. His glory and your best. I'm so glad that God has been patient with me. And I've needed that patience because of the second issue, and that is we have a problem with ownership. We have a problem with ownership. Now, understand what the problem was in this story. Jesus painted the picture. The vine dressers thought that they owned the vineyard, but they didn't own the vineyard. Who owned the vineyard? God. Now, we have the same problem. We believe that we own our life, but we don't own our life. Who owns our life? Yeah, it wasn't hardly as strong as the first one, was it? You don't own your life. You might say, well, I don't believe in God. What well, doesn't matter. God still owns your life. You see, everything in all creation belongs to God. And if it didn't, he would cease to be God. And that includes you and me. Now, what we like to do is we like to have this false idea that we are autonomous, independent individuals and we have the right to say and do and act and behave any way we want to because after all, I'm the master of my own fate. Wrong. You see, this is where our life gets chaotic. It's when we begin to believe like the vine dressers believed that we were in charge and God should be pushed to the margin of our lives to uh, tip our hat at him on occasion and, and to, to, to pay some sort of homage to him on special moments and special times. But the reality is God is some distant deity, has no bearing on my here and now. I'm in charge. I'm in control. I own my life. And the end result for us every single time that we think we're in charge of our life, when we fail to submit ourselves to the sovereign rule of God's rescue and his love, anytime we decide that we're in charge and the masters of our own faith, the controllers of our destiny, The end result is disaster, destruction, despair, death. We forfeit the wondrous life. And this is even as followers of Christ. See, now we, we, we sometimes as followers of Christ, we think, well, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven when I die. So I've got the wonderful life and, and, and I don't have to worry about this. No, we have to worry about this as believers because how many times as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, have you stiff-armed God and said, don't touch 
my life. I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to live life the way I want to live it. God, stay out of it. We're like the vine dressers believing that the vineyard belongs to us. But it doesn't. Everything. The psalmist said in Psalm 50, everything, all of creation, everything in creation belongs to God. But we get in trouble when we start thinking that my life belongs to me. See, and this is the big picture, and y'all need some big picture on this. Eventually, eventually, every atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Jewish person, Christian person, Baptist person, non-denominational person... Every person in India and Africa and Antarctica and even, even the Eskimos in the coldest parts of the world and, and uh, the, uh, uh, the, the people who live in, in uh, New Guinea and, and all points in between. People we don't even know exist. Everybody. Every king, every ruler, every authority, everybody. Every nation, every so-called superpower, geopolitical group, everybody, there will be a day when everybody will bend the knee and declare that Jesus is the king and God owns them. Now, that's where we're headed, but here's what the deal is. As followers of Christ, we need to be doing that today, every day. That's how we taste a wonderful life. See, the, the vine dressers were getting it wrong. They got it wrong because they had a problem with ownership. Some of us, some of us today, it needs to be a turnaround for us. We, we've been getting it wrong because we, we like to think that we're in control, that we must be in control, that we are in charge, and nobody has a right to tell us do anything. And the reason we live such decrepit, despairing lives is because we have been living our life as though God had no right to speak into it. We have a problem with ownership. And that's why Jesus delivers God's last and ultimate appeal. And that, that, that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to deliver this ultimate appeal of God's amazing love. He is the son coming down the street. The vineyard, uh, the vine dressers see him coming and they think to themselves, yay, the son is here. Let's honor him. No. They think, yay, the son is here. Let's crush him. And in the process of crushing the son, they're crushing their last chance at life and love. Guys, listen to me. If you get nothing else, get this. Please, please listen to this. If you crush Jesus, if you press him out of your life, if you push him away, if you reject him, if you choose to keep him at such an arm's length, even as his follower, if you say, I, I, I'm not going to follow you down that road, I'm not going to walk this path, you choose that, please understand, you choose to reject Jesus, you're choosing to reject love and life, period. There will not be a satisfying life apart from following Jesus faithfully. There will not be the taste of satisfying love in your life without following Jesus faithfully. 
It will not happen. And the truth is, as followers of Christ, we often crush Christ as he speaks to our conscience, as he speaks to our heart. We crush him. He speaks and we say, no. We punch him and push him and stone him and stifle him and try to kill him so that we can live life the way we want. It doesn't have to be that way. The story can change. You see, the story for the religious leaders was they killed Jesus. And that's exactly what they did three days later. They killed Jesus. But it doesn't have to be that way for you or for me today. And maybe you think to yourself, well, there, I, I, I've, I've had a problem with ownership. I've not surrendered to God. I, I've, I've been pushing Jesus away. I haven't been listening to his counsel. I haven't been following after him. Today, I, I feel like I'm, I'm just swirling in this dismal swamp of despair. I don't know what I'm going to do. Today, I'm in trouble. I don't know what to do. It can be a turnaround day for you. Here's how Jesus said it. Have you not read in Scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone, and it is wondrous in our eyes. What was he saying? He's saying, today's a turnaround day that if Jesus becomes the cornerstone of your life, the foundation of your life, if you again come and say, Jesus, what you want, that's what I do. Where you lead, that's where I'll go. Search me, try me, know me and see if there's any wicked affection in me. Let me clear the stage. Let me get rid of my sin. Oh, Jesus, let me follow you. You are the foundation of my life, of my relationships, of my walk, of my talk, of my work, of my play. You are my cornerstone and it is wondrous in our eyes. That can be the turnaround for you today. You see, the end of the story for you is yet to be written. It's open-ended for you to complete here and now, today. The choice. Will you crush Christ? Push him away and settle for a dismal life? Or will you bend the knee to Jesus and allow him to be the foundation stone of your life? It will be wondrous for you.